Hi, I'm Leo Finelli, and you're listening to Generation Change. We're more than two and a half years into the podcast, and the conversations keep coming. This month's guest is Sarah Kate Bodwin, also known as SK. She is currently a page at NBC Universal in Los Angeles. She graduated from Duke University where she studied a self-created major program called Storytelling as a Tool for Social Change. SK is passionate about exploring the intersection between narrative and social justice and finding unique ways to blend the two together. We talked about her work in audio and video production, her time at Duke, and a very fascinating public art project that she created. Hi. Hi, Leo. Usually I ask my guests where they grew up, but you grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, within biking distance of my house, and I saw you a lot because our younger siblings went to the same school, and we they were in the same grades, and they graduated together, so we saw each other a lot, and we danced together at their graduation party. That's right, absolutely. So this is kind of a first for the podcast, but you didn't always live in Charlotte. You once lived in Wisconsin. What are your memories of Wisconsin? Yeah, great memory that Wisconsin is such an important place for my family. I actually, it's funny, I've never lived in Wisconsin actually, but it's such an important place to me that it feels almost like more of a hometown sometimes than Charlotte has felt. There's one time in one of my college classes, not that Charlotte doesn't feel like a hometown, but I just extra, extra feel so connected to Wisconsin. So it's, it feels like my double hometown, but there was one time in one of my college classes that our instructor asked us to introduce ourselves and say where we felt like a local. And without hesitation, I immediately said, Wisconsin is kind of like the place that I consider home. And so even though I've never officially lived in Wisconsin, that's where my dad's whole side of the family is from and where we spent a lot of our time growing up. And I think is probably the place where most of my family is located in one central geographic area. So yeah, it's a very, very special place for us. Yes, I've been by your house. Your dad has Green Bay Packers stuff everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so in Charlotte, you when you were younger, you volunteered with a nonprofit called Mel's Diner. What was that like? Yeah, yeah. That was incredible. That was when I was in upper elementary and a teacher I had at the time had read an article about this organization called Mel's Diner. And it's a group um, of volunteers that go to three different locations. At the time, they were working with three different locations in Charlotte. And they would collect throughout the week food from grocery stores or restaurants that had been expired or was no longer going to be served. And then on Saturdays, they would go to these three locations and serve it. And our teacher, my teacher at the time, I was able to help our class get involved with that. And so we would all make meals once a month to deliver. And then I was able to kind of form a great relationship, mentorship with the leader of Mel's Diner, Duke Oxford. And that was just the beginning of a really special connection to Mel's Diner for several years. And I believe one of the Mel's Diner trucks actually has your handprints on it. It does. Yeah. Great memory. So that was one of the ways I was able to kind of continue building on the relationship with Mel's Diner, one of my friends at the time and I wrote business proposals to different area businesses asking for donations for them to be able to buy this concession truck, which would enable them to keep the food hot longer and kind of streamline their process a little bit better. 
And so then part of that was we were able to help contribute some money to, to getting the truck. And then he had some money already saved up. So it was kind of a great, a great serendipitous uh, partnership. And then the person who was selling the concession truck heard about the story and gave it to Duke for um, a great discount, which was awesome. And then there's all these great quotes and pictures on the truck. And so then there's a sweet spot where Duke let us um, put our handprints on the truck, which was very kind. So then how did you first become interested in video and audio production? Yeah, great question. I have always loved storytelling. I think that I really became interested in the concept of storytelling with Humans of New York. And I just was fascinated by that kind of slice of life way of capturing the world. And I found myself really, really interested in that reading or watching media that had to do with kind of slice of life storytelling. And then I, in high school, uh, there was an opportunity to do a podcast for my high school at the time, um, which was led by one of the leaders at the school. And he was then heading to a different school. And so he needed someone to take over the podcast and the timing was right. And I had this interest in storytelling and like kind of learning more about people's stories and it worked out great. So then he taught me kind of from the ground up how to do audio production, how to interview for podcasts. And I was incredible. So that really kind of jumpstart my interest in the audio world. And then I went to school to college and I continued being really interested in the audio world and took classes. And then I did a little bit with video, but honestly, not a lot. It kind of scared me because it was this extra component of nailing audio and video to get, you know, like a film project to work out. And I was really scared of it for a while. So I didn't really do much until COVID. And I took a semester off of college during COVID and lived at home with my family in Charlotte. And there was somebody who my dad was friends with who had started his own video production company in Charlotte. And my dad was nice enough to introduce me to Kevin. And then I just started working with Kevin and helping him out during the summer and and semester that I was home from school. And Kevin taught me everything I know about video production and shooting. And and I really do point to that experience with Kevin and kind of in like this total boot camp situation, learning from him, like as the thing that kind of put me on the path to being interested kind of in the film world more generally. And so when did you first realize that storytelling could be a powerful tool for social change? Yeah. I think that I started just paying attention to the way that it was affecting my life. I found that I was being really, really moved by, you know, firsthand accounts of larger scale political issues or social issues, but also just those like little slice of life stories that I was saying, like, I just found myself so moved by getting to hear that. And I found myself really understanding an issue better if I could hear someone talk about it through their own very individual textured life. And so I kind of started thinking, you know, this is something that I feel in my life, but I don't know if that's necessarily has any scalability to it, or if that's something that's true necessarily of everybody. So when I went to uh, to college, I started seeing really awesome examples around me of professors who were doing this, like this kind of work that I I dreamed of being possible. And I met very early on in college, I met one of 
my professors who have become a very important mentor and her whole body of research that she's been doing for like over 10 years is all about conducting interviews of people who have refugee experience and using those interviews about their life and about their experience to then create papers and to write in ways that can then kind of affect policy ideally. And seeing her and seeing her kind of her methodology that relied on narrative and storytelling was kind of this neat permission to me, like, whoa, okay, people who are so smart and so established uh, in their fields are, are doing this. And so this is what I think I am interested in as well. And then from there, I kind of took off trying to, you know, explore my own case studies of that and really kind of understand what it means more. Do you ever listen to This American Life on NPR? I do. I love it. I thought you did. So you got involved with the Charlotte Art League. What is the Charlotte Art League and what do they do? I first learned about the Charlotte Art League during COVID. And so I was definitely kind of just seeking ways to be a part of the community in Charlotte more and feel engaged in a time when obviously we all were feeling very, very siloed and kind of separate from each other. And I believe that I was, I think I saw it in social media. I saw there was a post about a group who during the Black Lives Matter protests in Charlotte were taking, you know, how many storefronts had boarded up their windows with plywood. They had created this initiative where they had artists commissioned and they would go out and paint just these beautiful, beautiful portraits on the plywood with messages of social justice and racial equity. And then just, you know, beautiful visual pictures as well. And I remember thinking that is so brilliant to, you know, in the middle of this really painful and strife filled time for our city and for a lot of cities around the U.S., kind of you know, taking an opportunity to use art in a way to keep spreading the message and keep kind of educating people and pointing to what people are saying in the middle of this protest. And so I saw that and I thought that's the most brilliant example of, you know, visual storytelling as a form of social change. And so I looked more into it and it was the Charlotte Art League was the one who was behind it. And I reached out to the team there just to kind of say, I love what you're doing. Is there any way we can keep talking more about what your strategies are and kind of like how you are approaching this idea of art and social change? And so I met with Jim Dukes, a lot of Duke slash Dukes characters in my life. But I met with this person named Jim Dukes, who was the executive director, still is. And and I just formed a partnership with them where I knew that I'd had the time for the rest of the semester to be able to kind of help them and work alongside them in what they were already doing. And so we were able to work on a couple really cool projects together. Uh, one of which I think is like maybe the clearest example to me of like, in my life, a case study of social change storytelling. Uh, we can get into that later if you'd like, but that's how I came to get to know the Charlotte Art League. And you did a podcast with them or a radio show called Charlotte Listens. Who did you get to interview and what did you talk about? So it kind of was a two-pronged thing. So the podcast was just me interviewing artists who had studios at the art league. And so they kind of had these little booths that they could rent out and they could do their art and sell their art there. And they were all so fascinating. I had such different types of art. And so I kind of wanted to find a way to honestly, just an excuse for me to get to talk to them and sit down and interview them for an hour. But then I kind of was able to say, you know, what if we were able to turn this into more of a public facing thing and kind of help with marketing for the art league. So that was the podcast. Charlotte listens is something that I kind of started mm -hmm. on my own 
and then was able to host it at the Art League because we had access to that space. And it was a is a payphone that has been refurbished and it no longer has the, you know, handset pickup on it and instead just has kind of a blank plexiglass covering and inside is a QR code. And so it's a storytelling payphone. And so you scan the QR code and it then allows you on your cell phone to call into this pre-programmed number. And on there, you can listen to five different stories that I previously recorded with people. And then you can leave a message of your own, just talking about whatever you want to talk about. And then I also have prompts for people of talking about their experience in Charlotte, their love of the arts, whatever that thing is. And then as more people you know, record stories, then I go ahead and I filter out um, and I switch out those five stories that are programmed so that they're kind of new as new ones come in. And the Art League is the first place where I place the payphone and then it traveled to other locations around Charlotte. You know, last year, I had the wonderful opportunity to connect in uptown Charlotte with a woman named Madison White, who had created a special journal called If Found, Please Read. And the idea behind the journal is that you get the journal and then you write in the journal, then you leave the journal in just some public place for somebody to find and add their story. And after I met Madison, she gave me one of her journals and I wrote in it. And a couple months after getting it, I left my journal with my name in it and my information and my journal entries, just as Madison told me to do, I left it in the M&M store in Times Square in New York City. <laughs> oh and gosh, I don't know. And I don't know yet if anybody's found it. That is phenomenal. I love this project. That sounds like such an incredible idea of Madison's. And I love that you took it to Times Square. And I'm sure someone was so delighted to find it. And I'm sure it's traveling around right now. That's so neat. I love that. Yeah. You've been a journalist for a nonprofit called Public Citizen. What is Public Citizen and what do they do? Yes. Public Citizen is based in DC and they are an advocacy organization focusing specifically on consumer rights. So their main issues are the environment and access to healthcare. And those were kind of the two that I spent the most time on. Um, and also rights for workers who are working in agriculture and are dealing with the elements of the environment and so kind of protecting their rights as workers. So they are all about kind of, they have a, a several pronged approach. They have a research team and they conduct really interesting studies and kind of collecting data to be able to give to policymakers in DC and kind of say, you know, in support of this issue, here's the data that we found. Uh, I was working on their journalism and their media team. And so we were kind of as policies would develop or as there were certain kind of like political opinions shaping about things, we would write pieces kind of, you know, making clear what public citizen's stance on the issue was. And a lot of times, there would have been a study that Public Citizen had done that we could use kind of to bolster that article. So our job as the journalism and media team was really to kind of be the bridge between all of this awesome research that was happening at the organization in kind of like transforming it into having a tone and a point of view and then getting that out into the world. And so that was really neat. It was very, very policy heavy, probably the most policy heavy internship or 
job that I've had. And it was really, really cool. I loved it. Okay. So you've done audio production for Charlotte Listens. You've done impact journalism for Public Citizen. And you've done documentary film production. What are your documentaries about? So the ones that I have actually created myself are more, they're very small, first of all. Uh, no full-length features yet for me, but they were ones that I created with the help of different professors at Duke. And they kind of centered along, a lot of them really still have that kind of slice of life element to them that I just really love. I think my favorite one that I got to work on in school was following a mother, father, or not, sorry, mother, father, a mother, son team that worked for Duke Sanitation and Recycling. And the two of them had worked at Duke for, gosh, a combined several decades. I'll have to look back and see the exact number. And they were just so incredible. And they had this like very just wonderful, you know, dedication to their work and a philosophy about their work. They saw it as like a ministry and they were so friendly. And so I got to meet them and I knew I was kind of interested also in the time of like trying to figure out how to get students on campus to adhere better to proper recycling sorting practices. And I myself am so bad at that. I feel like I sometimes am confused about like what goes in the compost, what goes in the recycling, what goes in the trash. And there was a lot of contamination happening on campus. So like the recycling appearance was very bad. So I kind of had this idea of like meeting these two people really helped me kind of say, whoa, this is seeing an inside look at what they do every day was just really transformative for me. And I then was able to spend a couple months with them and I would go for like early morning rides starting at, you know, like five in the morning on their industrial vehicles, picking up giant loads from different points on campus and then taking them to the processing center in downtown Durham. And it was, it was so, so neat and so wonderful. And so I just kind of was a fly on the wall. We would chat for the hours that I was in the truck with them and I was recording. And then I was able to put together a video kind of just about their journey to Duke and their commitment to this job and their commitment to the student body, despite being very frustrated at times of the way that people don't necessarily kind of recycle or sort their trash with as much kind of diligence or respect as they deserve. And that was just really neat. So then I was able to partner then with a, a group on campus called Green Devils United, and they're in charge of kind of like really helping to get the word out for sustainability on campus. And then we were able to kind of explore using this in some of their pushes for kind of, you know, getting students more involved in recycling and all that good stuff. So that was one of my favorite projects that I got to work on in college, one of my favorite documentaries. And when you went to Duke University, you actually created your own major called Storytelling as a Tool for Social Change. So tell us how you were able to do that. Yeah, yeah, it was... First of all, it was a combination of very fortunate circumstances. Number one, that my school had the option to do that. I know that a lot of schools do, but not everyone does. So the fact that that was an option at all, I'm so grateful for and just made such an impact on me. So that was number one, really, really lucky. Number two was getting exposed early on, like I mentioned, to seeing examples of professors who are doing the kind of work that I was really excited about. 
And the person who I mentioned who was doing that study about narrative research with people who had refugee experience, she was then able to be my advisor for this program and help me apply. So definitely lots of very fortunate circumstances. But yeah, Duke had a program where it's called Program 2, where if you could make the case that you could not study the thing that you so like desperately want to study within a traditional major program, then you could put together an application and apply to do program two. And you really had to kind of, kind of almost think in reverse or think kind of like a detective of like, what are all the ways? Cause they have a committee that reads it. And if there's any way that they can make the case that you could do this within a traditional other major, then you are usually then not approved for it. So you kind of have to put on your, like this kind of reverse engineering cap and think of all the possible arguments for why maybe someone might say, you don't necessarily need to create your own major and then kind of explain exactly why, no, this is exactly what I have to study and I cannot do it through any other permutation of majors, minors, certificates. And that was a really neat exercise for me to do. To I knew that I wanted to do this and I felt very compelled by that. But going through the exercise of creating this application and thinking in the mind of somebody who might say, eh, it's not totally necessary, helped me to really solidify my belief and my view of exactly why this was the perfect thing to major in and why it was crucial that I do it through this alternate program. So I applied and um, was lucky enough to get in. And then I was able to kind of, it's definitely a heavier workload when you create your own major. There's, I think I took 18 required courses, whereas most majors are somewhere in the ballpark of nine to 12 required core classes. So it's definitely a larger workload, but they were all classes that I made a case for why they needed to be included in my major. So the whole time I was taking all those classes, I was feeling so connected to the reason why I wanted to take that class, which was such a cool, unique experience. And uh, yeah, it was so wonderful. So I was able to, to graduate with that as my major, which feels uh, very surreal sometimes. It's so neat that that was able to be possible. But uh, for you were mentioning listeners who, you know, are in college right now. And I definitely, you know, encourage anybody to explore if their school has that. And if not, just getting creative and kind of like I was saying, like imagining someone is trying to say, how else could you create this major within what we already have here? Kind of maybe think in that, in those terms of what combination of clubs or certificates or just one-off classes could I take to get me as close to what I want to study? So definitely I encourage everyone to just be as like creative and crafty as possible in terms of kind of, you know, studying exactly what it is that you feel like is giving you energy and lighting you up. So tell me about your senior thesis at Duke. Yes. So I wanted my senior thesis to be something that I could point to and say, this is what I mean when I talk about social change storytelling, because I think it's a very vague idea. Storytelling is definitely a big buzzword that is used very frequently. Brands use it all the time, talking about brand storytelling, you know, personal brands, corporate brands. Storytelling means so many different things, has so many different mediums. And I really wanted to kind of distill what I mean by that in terms of what is storytelling and what does it look like for it to affect social change. And then I wanted to have something I could point to and say, like, here is my case study and this is what I mean. So I started 
with the goal of doing more of a traditional thesis project that would be written and it would be kind of very research-based. And I started by interviewing members of the Environmental Protection Agency. And I was asking them just A, about their work and their philosophies, but B, kind of what their engagement with storytelling and media is. And I have I had this kind of, this hypothesis, which was, if we want to find the link between storytelling and policy change, which is what I have been really interested in, what if we try to figure out what kind of stories and media policymakers themselves are consuming and what they're impacted by and and kind of then understand that way what what tools and strategies can be most effective in terms of breaking through the noise and affecting somebody who works in policy. So I spoke to members of the EPA because I specifically narrowed it down just to focusing on the environment and environmental policy. And I asked them a lot about kind of where they shape their opinions from, what stories they engage with, what sticks in their brain. And the really interesting thing that I found was a lot of people circling back to my earlier point about slice of life storytelling. A lot of the people that I spoke to couldn't name one singular environmental documentary that helped them change their perspective on, you know, the environmental crisis or just even necessarily like kind of shaping their view of it. But so many of them could point to very specific, vivid conversations that they had with people that they know. And they were just anecdotal stories told at like a water cooler at work. And so when I would ask them, you know, what stories about the environment and about the climate crisis have you heard that have stuck with you and that really kind of you find yourself being motivated by or that you find yourself being educated by. And that was the thing that time and time again, the policymakers I was speaking to kept saying was, I can't really tell you the name necessarily of any documentary that made a big impact on me. But the thing that people seemed really excited to talk about was just these personal conversations that were unproduced, unpolished, just people talking about their lives and what they've heard about people they know being affected by climate change. And that was such an interesting takeaway for me that that's what is sticking in people's brains. That's what they remember vividly. And so that was one of my central findings. And then I kind of got halfway through my thesis and I was starting to write it up in traditional thesis form. And I just was not enjoying it. And I was realizing, wait a second, this is not, this is not the medium that I feel is the most powerful. And this is not the one that I love the most. The thing that I love the most is film and audio. And so because my department was so great that they were so flexible with what people's majors were, and then they were able to kind of have flexibility for what your capstone or your thesis was about, they let me turn it into a podcast. So I took the paper that I had drafted in traditional thesis form, and I just turned it into a podcast instead. And it was so wonderful, such a great process to do that. And it stuck in my brain so much better. And I think that it was a much better product to share. And it was such a neat way to kind of, yeah, have all these, all these case studies and kind of a a thing to point to and say, this is what I mean when I'm talking about this kind of nebulous idea of social change storytelling. So now you're currently working as a page at NBC Universal in Los Angeles. What is that job like? Yeah, it is. It's a fun job. It every day looks very, very different. So the page program is a rotational entry level program where you get placed in different departments for four months 
assignments and you can get placed all around the NBC Universal ecosystem. So my first assignment, I was working with uh, the NBC network for primetime shows and I was working on the standards team, which makes sure that everything is appropriate to go to air and making sure that everything is fair on game shows and basically kind of being compliance and legals secondhand man. Then for my second assignment, I was with a TV studio working on all of their unscripted content, which was really neat. And then my last assignment, the one that I'm in right now, is with Focus Features. And I'm working with the team that you know receives all the scripts and pitches of people that are wanting to create films with Focus. And then it's also the team that once a project is picked up or greenlit, they see it all the way through to release, kind of helping give creative notes and working with the directors and actors and all that good stuff. So it's been such a great way to see so many different sides of the entertainment industry and get get a kind of neat way to fully be a part of a team for four months, but without the commitment of necessarily applying to a full-time role. And it kind of facilitates that in a really awesome way. So it's been fantastic. I've loved it. Are you interested in going into TV and feature film production? I am. I am. Yes. I, I, in the long run, I would love to work in documentary and be a documentary producer. And I'm not yet sure exactly what the path will be to do that. There's a couple ones that I'm kind of, you know, weighing all my options right now of what uh, is possible, what jobs there are, but I would love to stay in this world. Yes. Any other plans for the near future? Oh, well, on the topic of career stuff, one of my friends and I, who I met at my last assignment, uh, she and I were talking last week about working on some sort of just for fun little documentary project together and so i think next week she and i are gonna huddle again and put our heads together of ideas that we've come up with in the past couple weeks and then just for fun put together some sort of little project just to kind of keep the technical skills strong and keep the fun storytelling creative element in our lives because a lot of what we do is very administrative and so it can sometimes feel tricky to be so far away from you know being in the thick of producing something and so she and I wanted to do that so hopefully in the next couple of weeks we'll get started on something. Well it was so nice talking with you today Sarah Kate thank you so much for coming on the pod. Thank you Leo it was so lovely to chat with you and see you again and I love the podcast so much and I'm so happy that you're doing it it's such an awesome thing to have in the world and I'm so happy and grateful that you asked me to be a part of it. Thank you. Yeah, sure. You're welcome. Bye. All right. Bye, Leo. I had spoken to SK many times before at school events. Because our younger siblings went to the same school, we would often see each other. But I didn't really know her until I got the chance to sit down and talk to her for this episode. She struck me as an inventive person who makes things happen. She created her own major, which few colleges allow their students to do, took a few extra courses, and culminated her study of storytelling as a tool for social change with her senior thesis documentary. She made a good point about how, although people might not be responsive to movies or political speeches or news segments, they will respond to the everyday water cooler stories of the people around them. That's what I've been trying to do with my podcast to create a space for Gen Z advocates to share their stories with someone who approaches them not as a reporter, but as a friend. You can follow SK on Instagram at SKBodwin. That's at S-K-B-A-U-D-H-U-I-N. Generation Change with Leo Finelli is hosted by Leo Finelli, 
Executive produced by Julie Finelli and edited by Nick and Leo Finelli. Our original music was composed and performed by Leo Finelli. Thank you so much for listening.